Welcome to today's Minnesotan podcast. Today we have a true Minnesotan with us today, a hockey hall of famer of all of all sorts, Gary Smith, the athletic trainer for the University of Minnesota, the 1980 Olympic team, uh, the Philadelphia Flyers in the 1990s, and now most recently at Eden Prairie High School for the last 20 plus years. Gary's going to have some great stories dating back to growing up in Iowa and all the way now as the athletic trainer at Eden Prairie High School. Hope you enjoy the show as much as I'm going to. Love is a burning thing And it makes a fiery ring Bound by wild desire I fell into a ring of fire Well, good afternoon, Mr. Smith. How are you doing today? Good, good. Uh, this should be a uh, fun little show. You need to pull up your microphone just a little bit. There you go. Um, there's so much ground to cover here um, with your background as an athletic trainer and all the different lives that you've touched, all the great games you've seen, all the great athletes you've been a part of as an as a athletic trainer. And we're going to have some a wild ride here. Are you ready? Ready. All right. Um, let's start off. Let's tell everybody who Gary is, where you grew up. Uh, you grew up in Iowa and Waterloo. Uh, what was your childhood like, and, and how did you end up getting to the University of Minnesota? Well, I grew up in Waterloo. I was born in uh, Vancouver, Washington, when my father was in the uh, Army. And uh, I had uh, two younger sisters, and uh, uh, I went to Columbus High School in Waterloo. And uh, my father passed away my senior year in high school, so it kind of cut down on where I could go to school, and I had to live at home and go to State College of Iowa, which is now called the University of Northern Iowa. Which is right down the street in, in Cedar Falls, correct? Right. It's just uh, really close together. T two towns, uh, uh, you can hardly tell where one stops and one starts up again. So uh, you and I, are your, your, your career kind of started as a result of an injury, right? You were injured, and then that propelled you into this, this lifelong career of yours. Yeah, I was, uh, I was playing, uh, trying out for football. I was playing football. And I got a thigh bruise that turned into a calcium deposit. And uh, this is so in college. So you're playing was it like Division Two equivalent then? Yeah, that's so what you're it kind was. of an athlete too. Well, not much. It was, okay. th th they were trying to find uh, bodies, I think. Okay. And uh, it was really early in the uh, tryouts and everything. And uh, I, I played a little in co in uh, high school, but then I quit and got a job and uh, uh, went there. But uh, I got a calcium deposit, and I found out that there was a work study job for 20 hours a week. If you uh, worked in the equipment room, and uh, wrestling is really, really big in Iowa. Huge. I, I, my my wife grew up with Dan Gable, and uh, I. Wow. So I uh, he lived in uh, in the area where I I grew up too, and we followed wrestling was big. So I kind of became an equipment man manager for the wrestling team. And uh, I met a guy named Chuck Patton, who was a longtime coach there, and he kind of took me under his wing, and that's where I uh, uh, got going as kind of a self-taught uh, athletic trainer. I used to tape some of the football players for games and stuff like that, but I mainly worked wrestling. Really? So yeah, that's the, that was the hockey of, of Iowa then, right? I mean, this was probably one of the biggest sports in the state. 
Yeah, wrestling, wrestling was really, really big. And uh, uh, we didn't have any high school hockey or anything like that. We had some senior hockey being played there with the Waterloo Blackhawks. Right. So walk me through the progression. How many years did it take you? You said you paid your way through school, lived at home. Did, was it a five-year degree? Was it, it, was, it was a five-year degree. I'm figuring and, it would have been, and, yeah. Uh, and I was working three jobs at the time, and I barely graduated. I think you had to have a 220 to graduate, and I had a 225. So I really wasn't much of a student. And uh, 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 at that time, the Vietnam War was big, and uh, uh, I, got, I had a connection and got into the National Guard. And okay. so I went on active duty for the National Guard for six months, and then I came back, and that, that fifth year, I went to grad school, and I took three courses at, the, uh, at Northern Iowa. But uh, at the time, uh, the first six months that I got back, I was called out on a flood, a riot, and a tornado. Wow. And I thought, boy, what the hell did I get myself into <laughs> here? And when I moved up to Minnesota, I changed from the uh, – uh, National Guard to the Army Reserve and worked in an Army hospital unit and went to Army hospitals across the country for my uh, my uh, summer camps. Got it. So walk through the getting the job at the University of Minnesota. Today, getting a job at the University of Minnesota at the Big Ten Conference in athletic training or any support role is very competitive. You told me it's not very comp- wasn't very competitive back then. Uh, it, it really wasn't. I graduated from uh, uh, State College of Iowa, and I took a job in, in Bettendorf, Iowa. Yep. Uh, former <clears throat> former uh, coach was coaching down there. My wife taught in Davenport, and I taught in Bettendorf. And, uh, and then I read about a job when I went to a trainer's convention during the summer that, you know, now they have them on computers and everything else. I read this job on a blackboard. Yeah. And I applied for the job and uh, thinking that I wanted to go back and finish my master's degree because if you wanted to work in college, you had to have a master's degree as an athletic trainer. So I applied for the job and they said, sure, you can come up for the interview. Uh, uh, and I went up for the interview and I was the, I think I was the only person that was willing to pay their way up for the interview. And that's the reason I got the job. Because I really had, I didn't have much experience. I took a course in prevention and care of athletic injuries because it was a FIED requirement. Right. And that was it. And then I taught myself, uh, you know, how to tape and things like that. And uh, the guy that hired me was a guy named Lloyd Snapperstein. He'd been there during the Bernie Bierman years. And, really? Uh, and it was really... Uh, was he more of an equipment manager or was no, he, he more was, a true athletic trainer? He was a true athletic trainer, but yet they didn't have programs at that time. Right. Nowadays, you have to have a master's degree. You go to a, uh, a school that has an athletic training curriculum. Right. So what I learned was I learned on my own. I learned from him and watching people and stuff like that. So... At this point, you're a full-time employee, but this wasn't the most glamorous pay. You know, you had a, at this point, you're a, a young family. Yeah, I Tony uh, was probably just born, right? Or right well, he, right? Was, he was born a year, uh, the, the year that I started at the university, I've never lived it down, uh, I was working football. And uh, my wife, I left in Davenport, nine and a half months pregnant. And I even went down there one time and I made her walk nine holes of golf with me, trying to get her to yeah. go into labor, and it never worked. So I wasn't there when Tony was born. And back then, that wasn't as big a deal as it, it is today. You no, know, it wasn't as big a deal, but it's still it's, a big a deal in right. my family. It, it comes up periodically, and yeah, and it's he brought, was never Tony was never loved, was he? Yeah, he never was. 
But then I went down there two days later and brought him up and moved up here to Minnesota and and moved in, you know, moving from Waterloo, Iowa to the Twin Cities. Where do I live, you know? Yeah. I got a garden apartment in uh, over in the east side of St. Paul. And uh, I, I didn't know. She didn't complain, but it was a nightmare. It, would, it was not a good place for her. It's, you know, I found out. Then we moved into faculty housing. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. What was that like? That was really that was really nice. It was was I that could, covered by the school then? No, no. Oh, I you had, still had to we, pay. We had to pay, but yet you faculty members were allowed. They were townhouses. Where was that? Over by Como or? Uh, it was uh, about uh, five blocks west of Beerman. Uh, okay, got it. Down I, know by exact, the Go- I know exactly where it down is. Down by the Gopher Motel. Yes, yes, and, yes, uh, yes, yes. And, and then we. It, then we had another pregnancy three months later, and a week before we found out, uh, we found out we were having twins. And one week, and I thought, <laughs> "Holy Christ!" But we feel blessed to have twins. And yeah, yeah, boy, yeah, yeah, girl, yeah. Todd, who's written a couple of books, "Hockey Strong" and "Brave Enough" with Jesse Diggins. But then uh, uh, we lived there for several years, and then we we even extended it into a summer because we didn't. We told them we didn't want to move the kids in the winter time. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. So. Let's walk through your role at the University of Minnesota. Um, obviously, you were hockey because you wouldn't be here if that were the case. But you did other sports as well. Did you have Did you have baseball with Dave Winfield and Paul Mahler in some of those glory years? I did. I had both of those guys. And yeah. were you, did you travel when they went to the 77 World Series? No, I got bumped. Uh, you got bumped. I got bumped. <laughs> okay. All right, I'm just going through all the different, you know, must have had Bill Musselman maybe and Jim yeah, Dutcher. Yeah, Well, nowadays every school, every sport has an athletic trainer. Yeah. I think the, I think the university employs 23, 24 trainers. Right. Back then there was three. There was three of us. and A head and two assistants, the right? Other, the, yeah. The other, you just kind of volley back and forth kind of. The other assistant and the head were full-time, and I was on a nine-month contract. All of us worked football until halfway through the football season. Then I went over to a training room and worked hockey and basketball. Right. And so I took care of both of them till football got over. And then the other assistant came over, and he worked uh, hockey. And then Snapper traveled with basketball. And then I went back and took care of wrestling and the sports that uh, were uh, is swimming and things like that. And then eventually Title IX kicks in. Title IX kicks in. Right. Now you're getting all these women's sports coming well, in. Well, I'm not. But yet I was the designated trainer to uh, to make the change and everything. So the training room in, in Williams Arena became a co-ed training room. Yeah. So I had to make sure that the players used the proper language and <laughs> – the the other two athletic trainers really weren't on board with Title Nine, and I got thrown right in the middle of that. And yeah. the first girl I worked with was a lady named Dot Cone. Okay. And I think we got along okay and stuff like that. But it was a was she a, the coach or was she, she no she was, was an athletic trainer. trainer. Okay, all right. And she later became a chiropractor. And I ran into her out in San Jose when I was traveling out there with the uh, strike, uh, with the kick, uh, with the whoever I worked for, the Flyers. Flyers, yeah, yeah. The Flyers. She was in San Jose, and she came to the uh, arena, and uh, uh, and we talked a little bit about those days. Oh, I bet that was. Oh, uh, Title Nine was. Uh, yeah. Yeah, that's crazy. That's crazy. All right, so. Uh, at what point Herb Brooks gets hired, and at some point, what point was like the, the the aha moment? Like this is my guy, and he's your guy. When did that trust? It it, it probably didn't happen overnight. It probably took no, you a when while. When I first when I first started there, I, I took care of the the JV freshman team. 
the people that didn't make the big team, we had right. another team. And Herbie was uh, was the JV, co- was a freshman coach. Oh, okay. So I worked those games, and then uh, then Herbie uh, decided that he wanted me with the big club, and he he made that uh, happen. Mm-hmm. And so I became around seventy three or so. I started traveling with the uh, uh, with the varsity. And at what point did you know, hey? Th- th- this guy is different. He's, you know, you had Glenn Sonmore before that, and you'd been around a lot of different coaches, even just three, four, or five years in. Was he different? Was he a special guy, or was he like harder on the guys? What was what was different about Herb than than anyone else? I don't know if he was real different, but he was really he was hard on the guys. But yet, uh, as the years passed and everything, he would say, "I would I would love to go out and have a beer with him." And, but he would never let himself do that. He would never let himself. But he would, he would use me to see how things were going. And uh, uh, Robbie McClanahan was uh, uh, came from a pretty good family, lived in North Ork, Oaks. Yep. And uh, there are a lot of times he would send messages to the team by directing them toward uh, Robbie. Yeah. And uh, I think later we'll talk about the Olympics, and he did that in the Olympics also. But he, he would always want to know how Robbie was taking it. And uh, Robbie was was uh, friendly with me and a good guy, and uh, we hit it off pretty good. Most of the guys I hit it off pretty good with, you know, because they would complain to me about different things that Herbie was doing, things like that, and uh and then you know they knowing that uh, that I might say something to him and they might get out of you know skating herbies or something like that. But uh, do you think part of the whole Robbie Robbie and Herb was Herb grew up East Side St Paul and Robbie grew up in North Oaks? Maybe some of that was- very much so. We had another player that was recorded, big time player from Thief River, that came from a lot of money named Tony Dorn. Yeah, and he he had a lot of potential and everything, but he never fulfilled it at the U. And I don't. Uh, I don't know what that was. Uh, he just didn't uh, hack it, you know. Herbie loved uh, St. Paul Johnson and the hardcore, but he went after Edina kids too. Yeah. Oh yeah, he yeah. for sure had yeah. had his share of those kids. All right, so you know they win a national championship. Now he's got the program on the map as one of the top programs right out of the way. And he, and and if you re, if you study it. Herb was not well-liked in the coaching community, in the college hockey coaching community, east or west. Uh, so it's almost somewhat of a miracle that he was chosen as the coach uh, after what he had gone through in, in, with, with the Gophers. Um, we got to get right to it. 1976 is a special year. They win a national championship, um, and they beat Boston University in the semifinals, which is a very famous game. We're going to get to that in just a second. But before that, they beat Michigan State um, to make it to the to, to the Final Four. They didn't call it the Frozen Four back then. And they win in like three or four overtimes at Michigan State. Uh, you, you you have a claim to fame here that you you got it you got involved with with somewhat of a coaching in somewhat of a coaching role late late in this overtime because nothing seemed to be working. What walk through that story? Yeah. Well, back in those days, uh, uh, you know, the, Herbie would 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 say things about the other team and and the other coaches and stuff like that to to fire up the team. He he would he would always be. Uh, us against them, and he was very proud that we were all from Minnesota, and, and you know that was a theme through a lot of teams and stuff like that. So he, but yet there there's a there's a camaraderie among hockey coaches because I remember going to coaches' houses when we were on the road for parties, 
after after games and stuff. And uh, Lefty Smith in Notre Dame, yeah. I remember that. And in uh, some of the other places we would go to if we were staying overnight and flying out. So there was a certain amount of that. But Herbie always liked to have – there was always adversaries in his life that he, he – he, if they didn't do it Herbie's way, they weren't on the bandwagon. Right. And uh, uh, Michigan State had a Craig, an old-time coach too, named Emil Bazzoni. And he would sit in a chair by the uh, by the gate, and he would whistle when he wanted lines changed. <laughs> and Michigan State had a tremendous team, and uh, they had the highest scoring team in college hockey uh, that year. Uh, I knew a couple of the names. I was trying to think of them, Sturgis and and some of them. But anyway, uh, we were in a overtime with them. The winner went to the uh, NCAA finals, and after the first period. We're outside the locker room, and Herbie said, what do you think? And I said, well, you better do something because they're not playing for crap, and you better get them going. And so he walks into the locker room, and I'm like a little puppy, right? I want to see what he's going to do, and I'm right behind <laughs> him. And he picks up a garbage can, and he whips it backwards, and it hits me. Garbage all over. And, uh, uh, and he reads him the riot act. He comes out, and it's almost like the switch goes on and off. He said, well... We'll see if that does anything. And so we go out and we uh, play another overtime period. And so now uh, we got two overtimes. After the second one, I said to him, let me try something. I don't know where I got it or anything, but I went in the locker room and I said, This is like the 70s now where it's kind of funkadelic, right? Yeah. You're trying some new form, new medicine, right? New age. New New age age medicine here. So. Uh, I said, I want everybody down on the on the ground. Get down and put your legs up on the uh, uh, on the chairs, and I want you to picture all that dry, that tired blood running out of your legs, and I want you to picture yourself uh, scoring that winning goal. And I turned off the lights, and all of a sudden the door opens. He says, "What the hell are you doing?" I said, "Get out of here." <laughs> And uh, I shut the door, and we stayed for a minute or two, and then we went out in the third period, and Pat Fippen uh, scored the goal, and and they uh, Delta held the plane for us and everything. Really? For, to get back from De- we had to go from East Lansing to to Detroit to catch the plane, and they held and they cheered for us when we came on. But we went to the NCAA finals in at the University of Denver then. Which is somewhat of the most legendary, you know, one of the more legendary games that has caused much controversy, uh, it, it, it maybe in the university hockey, you know, history, uh, happened in a game. You're playing Boston University. Let me set the stage. You're playing against BU, who's arguably the best team in the country, uh, high-flying, and talk about adversaries. Herb Brooks sets the stage in this game as they are the preppies. They are East Coast they're Canadians. They're everything that we hate, you know. So he's already kind of set the stage. He's fired the troops up as well as you've ever seen at this point, right? Um, walk through uh, what happens because it was not just one brawl, but it was two brawls within about a five or ten minutes span. And rarely does an athletic trainer get involved or get in the middle. But the way the rink was set up, you couldn't help but be in the middle of this. Uh, you got to make sure my wife doesn't hear this. <laughs> Find some way that she'll never. Okay, sure. I know my sons will tell her. But uh, 
you know, the East. And just for the record, this has been published. This story has been oh, published. So it's not like I'm unearthing new ground here. And she went off on me for I don't know how many days because of that. Okay, good. All right. Todd, Todd had to publish that, you know. Yeah. Big yep. Smitty, you know. But anyway, you know, we were the, we were the Minnesota guys, and they were the preppies. And Herbie always had a theme that he always would stir, try to stir people up, try to get them fired up to go beat the hell out of somebody. You know? Yep. And uh, so the East versus the West was really a big deal in, in college hockey at that time. And uh, now they, the final four comes from all over the place. Right. But uh, the, they always have an East and a West referee too. And so in the first minute of the game, the uh, West referee calls a penalty on Russ Anderson, who went on and played East four- referee called against Russ Anderson. Yes. yes. Yeah. The, the East ref called on yeah. Russ Anderson, who played about 14 years and wouldn't be playing hockey if he hadn't hurt his ankle in football. He was a gopher football recruit, and he sprained his ankle on the turf, and he couldn't run, so he, he, he played hockey in high school. And he had a great career, married Miss America and all that. But the, he uh, – he went into the box, and the penalty box in this old, old rink is right next to our bench. And theirs, too, right? No, they, there's a Zamboni goes out in uh, on oh, the really? other side of cool. it. Cool. And then their bench is on the other side of that. Right. And uh, so. <laughs> so this poor guy was, okay, I get it now. Yeah, now it's even yeah, better a story. Yeah. So Russ is in the penalty box. you got to step up, and you have to go in there. And <clears throat> so. The next minute, in the we're killing the penalty. The Western ref evens it up by calling a penalty on them, and the guy comes over, and it turns out it's their leading scorer. I didn't know him from Adam. I didn't know his yeah. name or who it was or anything, and so the the bench is really giving it to him, and I'm the next verbally, verbally. I'm yep. the guy right next to the penalty box, so he gets in the penalty box and. And he turns and he, he makes eye contact with me, and he's got to sit and share the penalty box with Russ Anderson. And he spits on me, and Mark Lambert takes his stick and hits, uh, hits the guy, and then the guy takes his stick and starts hitting back at, at, at Lambert. And I grabbed the stick and took it away from him. From Maher. From, from Maher, from yeah. From BU. And uh, they, uh, Russ Anderson, him fighting the box, and he gets Russ Anderson down. Russ Anderson was really a tough kid. And so they fight for I don't know how long. And then they start, they get everything under control. And they start picking everything up. And I'm standing here holding a BU stick. And, and uh, Mike Fiddler, was the North Stars, he comes over and told me to keep my freaking hands off the stick. And I said, I didn't touch it to your guy hit me with it. Tom Younghand sucker punches him. And they go again. And so uh, they they throw out Russ Anderson and Terry Maher, who is their best player. Their best player, and so uh, we go on. We win the game, and we go on, and we beat uh, Michigan Tech in the final. But Jackie Parker, then he goes on record saying, "This that is the, after the game." Parker goes into the press conference and calls Herb Brooks Herb Bush. Yeah, well, he said that Herbie and the trainer premeditated the whole thing to get their best player thrown out. Well, how, how would we know that he's going to get a penalty? And I, I didn't know who he was anyway, but that's what, that's what it standed. And then Herbie and I got hauled into the 
NCAA. So this story that you just, we're going to get to, there's a couple epilogues to this story too, but this story, which makes it even more interesting, is if you watch the movie The Miracle, or Miracle, um, they there's a scene that's directly Jack O'Callaghan talks about uh, Rob McClanahan, he that guy over there cheap shots me and took takes the ring off my finger. Right? Remember, there's a it's a great scene in the movie, right? Um, and it really what what the scene does from a dramatic perspective talks about the battle between the East and the West. And it's really the Minnesota guys and the BU okay. guys because there's a bunch of BU guys on your team and there's a bunch of Minnesota guys that that make the team as well. But while I'm watching this, I had known this story. While I'm watching this movie, I'm like, this is all as a result of the big brawl. Now, this this thing, it went, this angst. Now, this is in 76, the March of 76. You're trying out for this team in 79. So this is three years removed. There's still heat and passion over this one fight. Well, I, I don't know if that's true or not because, you know, in the movie they have the East going against the West and there was a – in the tryouts there was yeah. supposed to be – if I don't think that ever happened. I never heard that. No, it was in, – in the movie they, they had already made the team. These guys had already made the team, but they still didn't like the, – the movie's trying to show how much they didn't like each other as a result of yeah. – But of, see, Herbie, Herbie's coaching attitude, he brought these East and West together. They came together against him. And that that was yes. The, well, that, that was that, yeah, as six, a result later on six months of that. You know, they became buds and everything. Yeah, they for sure did. And, we'll, we'll get to that in a second. So, uh, what ends up? So this is the in '76. You you and Herbie and Paul Geal have to go to Kansas City in front of the NCAA and plead your case as to why or why not you shouldn't be suspended from either the season or NCAA playoffs. Walk through that moment. Well, I mean, they uh, they filed a, a Jackie Parker and and Bill Cleary, who was the Harvard coach, and he's an Eastern guy. Yeah, he I think he's the head of the ice hockey committee at the time. And so, yeah. and so he's championing to get Brooks a, a, a suspension or something. I'm going along because I'm right in the middle of it. And uh, on the way down, Paul Geal kind of reaches across to me and he said, "Smitty, whatever punishment they give you, we're going to accept." We've got some major problems in our basketball program. <laughs> and I, I kind of I sit there and I think, well, you're, you're, I'm the sacrificial lamb. I didn't say anything because I was, I was lucky and happy that I still had a job. But because they, they could have fired me if they wanted. They could have said, you know, I'm just a lowly little trainer here. Get rid of him, you know. But uh, so when we went down there, we appeared before it. They showed some of the tape and everything else. And what came out of it was uh, I got barred from the next NCAA tournament that Minnesota went to. And yeah. so at the time, I, uh, uh, we didn't go the next year. And I left the university to go work pro soccer and open a sports medicine clinic at the time. So I never served the penalty. And they did nothing to Herbie. Nothing to her. So now you're working for the Minnesota Kicks, which at this point of your career and your athletic training career, uh, in your you know building your craft, you'd never worked with soccer players before. It had only been the traditional Big Ten sports, which was you know football, basketball, hockey, yeah. um, maybe some baseball. Uh, walk through working with soccer players, and there are these are some of these guys are international stars. Um, walk through that experience working with the kicks. Well, uh, the the kicks were a lot of English players that they brought over and everything. But, you know, injuries are injuries. Pulled hamstrings or pulled hammies, or sprained ankles or sprained ankles. So uh, 
you had to change them a little bit because in Europe they were so accustomed to something gets hurt, the physio runs on the field and he's got a bucket with cold water and a sponge in it and he squeezes the cold water on the uh, injury. And they, they wanted to know where my magic sponge was. I said, I don't use a magic sponge. I use something called ethyl chloride, which was a, when it hits the skin, it, it, it evaporates and it causes cold, which you're trying to overcome the pain that the part is telling the right. brain. So, you know, I mean, I, with the kicks, I was everything. I was the traveling secretary. I was the equipment man. I was the trainer. I was everything. And, I mean, soccer really kind of took off here. We played at Metropolitan Stadium, and one year we averaged 47,000 people. Yeah, it was and it was huge. A, it, it was, a, it was one, a big party. One big party because they didn't charge to park. That was you it. Could, you could park free. And when I would go into the stadium with the equipment and everything, pushing it in for a game about 4 o'clock in the afternoon, there would be people out there partying, and I'd come out at 11 o'clock at night, and they're still out there. Some of them had never gone into the game. The the prices for the tickets were two and three dollars. They were cheap, and they had no idea what soccer was. And uh, if you raised your right hand, they booed. If you raised their left hand, they cheered. But we had some great players, and we were very successful. Made it to one soccer bowl. Yeah, uh, against the New York Cosmos in Portland, Oregon. And I didn't get to go because football started at the U, and I had to go back to work, you know. Right. But eventually I went full-time with the uh, soccer because it kept getting bigger and bigger on me. It was huge. Well, I I just didn't want to leave that part of this out. We're going to talk a lot of hockey today, but I thought it was kind of neat that you'd work there, and you also worked for the Strikers for four years as well in indoor soccer. Let's talk a little bit about your profession before we get back into the 80 Olympic team. And I want to just make sure we check this box because how has – you know, we talked a little bit about – it how you know there were three trainers at the U of M now each sport has their own trainer uh, besides the number and, and the attention paid to uh, athletics and athletic training what other things have changed uh, in your profession over the last 50 years where from from it doesn't even have to be from the 70s it could be from the 1990s to today what are some of the biggest things you're working on today that's different well, I, I think for one thing, you know, I, I'm just, I'm taught on the fly. I, I'm a grandfathered-in athletic trainer. Now they come out of school with a master's degree, and they're educated much better than we were when I first started. I think if there's anything I would take a lot more of, it would be psychology, because there's a there's an unbelievable amount of uh, psychology that's involved uh, in in dealing with an injury. It could be a sprained ankle, but uh, Snapper used to teach me that it's a sprained ankle that occurred to a person. So you're treating the person, you're not treating the sprained ankle. So some of those things have, uh, you know, uh, uh, Musselman always, not always, but he used to, I remember he told me, he said, I need, I need a trainer and get him back on the court. You know, right. you need to get them back on the that court. That was what I was going to get to. Like, that's the, a big thing, it's right? A big, it's a big deal, but... You know, and so you get caught up. I mean, it's an unbelievable amount of uh, pressure uh, in pro sports. And uh, I lasted four years in the National Hockey League, and uh, I don't know if I enjoyed it. My kids liked my job better than I did. They'd love to have their dad as a trainer with the Flyers. And, uh, you know, he, I would send fight tapes and things like that, and they would have a party in the dorms, my two boys, you know. But the uh, uh, and the fighters, I mean, I really miss good fights. I shouldn't say that, but I mean, it's okay. nowadays people, and now I'm in the concussion <laughs> world too. But uh, the the fighters were the most genuine people on a hockey club. 
I mean, they didn't have any preconceived notions that they were there to score goals. They were there to protect protect the people who could score the goals. Right. And they were the greatest guys in the world. You know, Rick Tockett, Dave Brown in Philly, they were just absolutely great human beings. And they took care of the trainers and, you know, they take you out to eat. And, I mean, they were just great people. And so uh, I miss some of those those people on hockey teams because they've had to, they've kind of cut down on the uh, concussion stuff. And I would think... You know, another progression in in sport athletic training has got to be uh, concussion treatment. And I know you're the concussion guy. What's your title with the NFL and the Big Ten? Call time? me the ATC spotter. What's that? Uh, athletic trainer certified spotter. And I, and I, you know, from the when they started this program, I I, I think it's nine or ten years ago, uh, they have put people in the uh, in the press box looking for signs and symptoms of somebody that's been concussed that's not being picked up. Because if you've ever stood on a football field, on the, on the field, you can't see much because there's so many big people out there. And uh, this all kind of precipitated from a game in Michigan when our quarterback got dinged pretty good and he was stumbling around on the sidelines and they put him back in the game. And I basically am looking for signs of somebody getting hit and showing signs. That's what it started as with concussion. But now any injuries that we have, we tag on a uh, flash drive, and it's delivered to the athletic training staff, medical staff of each team, and all the referees get a tag of a flash drive of any injuries that we pick up on. But the ones we need, we really are trying to control so that they get the proper evaluation is the concussions. And it, when I started, I was all alone. I was sitting in the in the press box between Mark Rosen and Don Mitchell with a phone in front of me. And I thought, this isn't going to go. I mean, I can't be talking about injuries with these people right here beside me. Right. But then they moved me into a booth, and then they gave me a tech who, was, who I could go back and I could look at the play again. And now it is, uh, there are two athletic trainers in the booth. Each of us has a tech. There's a UNC, which is an unaffiliated neural consultant, is a doctor that's in the booth with me. Each team has a, a UNC on the sideline. I have a connection to the referee. I have a connection in the other ear to the medical staff of the team I'm covering. I have a walkie-talkie that goes to another guy down there called the Teal Hat that can stop the game if the referee doesn't pick up it doesn't hear me and uh and then there's another phone that goes down there so there are an unbelievable number of balls in the air and it's three three hours and 15 minutes in an nfl game of a lot of stress looking for people and they don't want to let you know because the average lifespan of an nfl football player is two and a half years i was gonna say four years no it's two and a half and last time they yeah i believe you so they have to they have to make their money when they're kin, and if they get pulled out, it's, uh, you know, the old Lou Gehrig thing. You, you never know, get the, back in. Never get back in. So 
Walk through that. Is the only games you do are football, or is hockey also a contact sport hockey, as well? Hockey has picked up on it, but they're not at the level that the NFL is. They have an athletic trainer that sits in New York and watches a game in the Eastern time zone. He watches a game in the Central time zone, and then he watches another game in the West, and he has direct contact to the benches where he can tell somebody, uh, well, the athletic trainer on the bench, he can tell them that you need to get – uh, have somebody looked at, and uh, uh, I don't know how much. That's the uh, NHL? That's the NHL. Okay. When you're doing a, 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 let's just use Big Ten football, for example, you see these targeting calls, right? You know, Johnny Smith has been called for targeting. He's been ejected from the game. In that situation, are you then following the player who was targeted off the field basically on camera, are you are you following with your with your binoculars? Well, binoculars, How do you follow this guy. Uh, uh, well, the Big Ten is isn't nearly as sophisticated as the NFL. I'm all by myself at the Big Ten. Okay, and I was in the uh, uh, instant replay booth until this year, and they felt that social distancing wasn't uh, adequate, so they moved me into a suite and ran all the wires down one lo- level, and I'm in a suite with a TV and a computer and my binoculars, and I start looking for it. The Really, the, the telltale thing for me, though, is what the player shows me after the hit. If he grabs his helmet or he starts shaking his head or he tries to stand up and he's unsteady, those are signs that there's something going on, but they're getting the the players unfortunately are getting smart enough that they won't show you that. Right. And the referees are doing an unbelievably good job of identifying people. Then they have to be escorted to the sideline, and if I have to stop the game, I uh, contact through my uh, 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 a thing that I push to talk directly to the referee in the NFL. And in the uh, Big Ten, I tell the instant replay person to stop the game, and then I give them the name and the number and the team, and then they escort that person off. Then they have to pass a test before they're allowed to be put back in. And that's the school's neural... And what is it called? It, it, well, the unaffiliated neural consultant yeah, yeah, is in yeah. the is in the NFL. Okay, they don't the the team takes care of them in the Big Ten. What is the tent? What is that thing at, at a Big Ten football game? I see well, that a big lot. Ten, that's where they want to take a, they want to examine a player, but they don't want the other team to be able to see what they're examining. Is that the point of the tent? Uh, that's part of it because then they may target the injury. Right, but in in the Big Ten, it's becoming. Uh, it's become a porta potty. The players will go in there and, and pee, and they'll pee in a bag, and then they come out and they Got and it. they drop it in a garbage can. Because I, I my my season tickets are right by the tent. I'm like, what's going on in here? Well, you when, know? The, when the tent goes up, usually somebody's going in there to be examined. Yeah, and so you don't have to take them all the way back to the locker room. Right, but. Concussion, a concussed individual in an NFL game may go into the tent first, and if he shows that he's having trouble, then he will go back into the locker room, and they will do a full scat too is what they call it, right. which is a lot of questions, a lot of tests and stuff like that because they, they don't want this person going back in the game if they're concussed. Right. Well, I'm glad we got to be able to check that box because yeah. we looked at the end and we go, we got to talk about your concussion protocol. And I think there's a lot to that. So yeah. I think there's, it's really important, even for hockey, because if you're a hockey fan, you're listening to this, you've seen all of these 
the, the dedication that sports in general has given to concussions. Go back. Do you, do you have any memories, recollections when you were the athletic trainer and you had some kid, you know, in in the oh, 80s or 90s oh that Lord. didn't deserve to go back in a game, but somehow the coach, you know, leaned on you a little oh, bit to get him back in? It happened, yeah. But as soon as you get to the point where the coach knows that you're, uh, as Fleck would say, rowing the boat, you just happen to be sitting in the, on the right side and you're in the third seat. As long as these coaches understand, I don't want them in the training room any more than you want them off the field or the ice. Right. So I'm going to do everything I can to safely get them back there. I just don't want and, – and, you know, some coaches don't believe that. It takes a time. And that's where Herbie knew that I would do everything I could to get them back. I mean, I would do things I, – I, I don't know if people do this, but – I've told, I've told my kids this. I don't know if I have or not. But, you know, we when we first started at the U, we didn't have the depth that we had now. We had two or three defensemen that you could count on, and you might have had two lines or something like that. Herbie didn't have the time yet to build up the uh, program. The program. So he hadn't recruited enough players and stuff. So uh, this is in the old days when when we had hard contact lenses. And I would, we would stop the game when people were getting tired or something like that. And I would, I would get the referees to let me come out on the ice and look for a contact lens. And I would have a contact lens in my mouth. And I would drop it on the ice and I would pick it up and I would say, I found it. And I would go back to the bench. That would buy us four or five minutes of rest. Yeah, and uh, this is before TV timeouts. This is before TV timeouts. I mean, these games now. I mean, the games at the U are four hours. The NFL games are three hours and fifteen minutes. They're pretty on thing. Yeah, they're, they know. But we exactly. didn't. We didn't have time, and then then we could rest some people up, and 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 then and then after when when I did that for a few times during the year, Herbie, I, I remember he said to me, he said, "We need to do something about these contact lenses." I said, "What do we need to do, Herbie?" He said, well, what do you mean? He said, Herbie, we're not losing contact lenses. I'm getting us another timeout. Oh, good, good. Yeah. <laughs> he didn't he, realize he that. Didn't, huh? He didn't know it. He didn't peck up no, on that. No, he didn't peck. He didn't, he didn't know it. Oh, I know. There's, there's a lot, there, lot of know, tricks. The, the old ones are the size of a nickel. Oh, they're, yeah, they were And they're huge. hard and everything else. Yeah, know? they were huge. That's for sure. Uh, All right, let's get back to, to 1980. Um, I think you getting the job uh, with the team is – Somewhat incredible because you weren't the chosen trainer. No, um, they had chosen a trainer from Colorado College. The, the you know right there in, in Colorado Springs where the the team was chosen. They chose their trainer as well. How did you cut ahead in the line and get that job? Well, I'd I'd been gone from the U. My last year was seventy seven, and I was working pro soccer and stuff like that. And Herbie called me and wanted to know if I wanted to go to the Olympics with him. And uh, I said, well, let me think about it. I, you know, I, that sounds good and everything, but that, I told him, I said, that's not the way you get picked for Olympic teams. Uh, he said, well, what do you mean? How do you get picked? He said, well, you have to go out and volunteer your time for two weeks at one of the training centers, and then they evaluate you. They're basically using you for free help right. to cover the uh, training room while teams are there practicing and going through the uh, you know, training and stuff like that. And so he said, well, go ahead and do it. I said, okay, I will. I applied and everything, and they wouldn't let me come because they'd already chosen chosen somebody. And I knew the guy. He was in the WCHA with us at Colorado College. And uh, and so uh, I, I couldn't get him to let me go. 
And uh, when we played in Colorado, I even met with uh, the the big wig of the uh, the sports center out there, and he told me that they already had a trainer, and we appreciate you uh, uh, filling in because he's got he's working at school, and he'll be there for the Olympics. So I told Herbie, I said, Herbie, I'm, I'm not going to do this. I'm going to go back to soccer because this is – I, they're going to they're going to use me, and I'm going to run around all over the world, and then I'm going to get bumped when the Olympics get there. He said, "Don't worry about it. We'll take care of it." And so when we got to Lake Placid, here comes the guy, and Herbie told him, "He said we don't need you. We got a trainer," but he wouldn't go away. And so he he kind of hung around, and he was around the locker room and stuff like that because I couldn't go in the village because I wasn't official. Right. And so he treated the team back in the village, and then on the days we didn't play hockey, he went and covered the ski hill and stuff like that. So I'm the guy who's got the ring, and I'm the guy in the picture, but we had another trainer there that <laughs> was the official USOC. But they've changed it since then, and now when the sports like basketball, the pros are going, the pros always have an NBA guy there. Right. And the National Hockey League does the same thing. Uh, they provide a guy, but the USOC provides a guy also. Right. So they use the league people because they feel that they they need the relationship, and they they have the best entrance of the National Hockey League at their you know they want to take care of these players too. So let's go through this this process uh, of the, first of all they played sixty games of practice before they actually hit Lake Placid. What were you thinking when you got to this? You saw the 60-game schedule. Granted, they were based here, so you got to be with your family for some of it, but you guys went on one heck of a road trip uh, all over the uh, – playing in the, against the – what do you call it, the Central League? But it was basically the AHL. Um, and then playing teams from all over the world. You guys went to Europe once or – did you go once or twice over to Europe? Uh, one big trip. Okay. They wanted, Herbie wanted to get us on a big sheet of ice. And that's why we went to Europe, because there weren't any sheets around here. No, there weren't. Um, at what point during this process of the, the 60 games did you think, this is a folly? Like, this is like this is one of these things that Herb's doing that's completely backwards and wrong? Or did you believe in the system and believe what he was doing uh, from the get-go? Well, I, he's, he was always a very, very sharp guy, and he very – he he felt that uh, the way the Russians played the game was the way to play the game, and he uh, he got the university to build an Olympic sheet of ice, right? Because they they recruited fast guys and stuff like that. But I don't know if that that didn't happen when he was there though. No, but it but was... they followed. You know, he he felt that the type of players he wanted were the Eric Strobel type players, right? Who, who uh, fast, oh, fast, and everything else, and. He said, you got a $100 pair of legs and you got a dollar brain, you know. That was one of the things he said about Eric. The poor guy, he was a great guy, though, Eric was. And uh, uh, I don't know. I'm, I'm, he probably got on a lot of guys, so it wasn't, he wasn't the only one. He got on a lot of guys. And uh, uh, but, but back to be the – we played 48 out of 60 games on the road, and, and I'd wake up and we'd you'd lay there in bed with Buddy, the equipment guy, and we'd have to try to figure out where the hell we were at. Yeah. I mean, we were – Oklahoma uh, City, right? Uh, Tulsa. Who, this is Tuesday. Where are we? And so a lot of those things, you know, uh, there was there were some behind-the-scenes stories that were – like we – Herbie did not want to go to uh, uh, play the War Road Lakers. He did not. He want did to. not want to. Oh, go it's up a there big. Because, it's still on a poster board oh, up there. And he, he uh, 
Uh, he wasn't going to make us ride all the way to War Road. Someone and cut a deal with Cal Marvin somehow to no, get that to cut, happen, he, right? He cut a deal with Stanley Hubbard. Stanley Hubbard gave us one of his planes, and so we we got on a, a, a prop jet yep. at the St. Paul Airport, and uh, it, it looked like it was a war plane that wasn't going to make it off the ground. And Warren Stradle, the goalie coach, was a huge, huge guy. Yeah, and he did. He didn't like to fly either. So, the, the players, uh, the players got on this plane. And I think there were only four seats across, and they all got on one side and sat on the plane. And then Warren entered, and the other side was empty. And they said, "Warren, you sit over there," because <laughs> they were worried about this plane. Yeah. And so we 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 took off, and I'll tell you, we didn't get a hundred feet above the trees. I mean, it was unbelievable. And we got the war road, and we played the game, and a blizzard hit during the game. And so they they portrayed this in the movie. The way they did it didn't happen that way. But when we got done, we came out, and we had to load up to go in this plane. But this plane, the runway wasn't long enough for us to get off. Yeah. So Buddy Kessel and I got in pickup trucks with the equipment, and we drove to Thief River Falls, which had a longer runway. And so we we got there, and they loaded the plane up and everything, and it started taxiing, and it stopped because the wing hit a light pole. <laughs> and and planes don't have reverse. No. So we had to get out, and we and had push. to push the plane back, and it happened again. And in the movie, they said that they, the plane hit a moose yeah, on yeah, the yeah, runway, yeah, yeah. but it hit a light pole. Close enough. And then we're praying like hell to get, uh, get up there. I mean... That would have been another crash that would have but, Yeah. Oh. That would have been bad. And we made it back. And uh, it was, uh, it was so, you know, some of the times that, uh, you know, some of those trips that, that we took, you wondered how we ever made it. Uh, that, that reminds me of tripping like that. When I was with the Gophers, uh, uh, Herbie, we would go to Duluth usually. We'd take a bus. Tech, sometimes we would. Yep. And Herbie would have me go buy two cases of beer. And uh, uh, if we won the game, they got two cases of beer to drink on the way back. If they lost, they only got one. <laughs> and he took the other case home. Yeah, I, I've think, heard that story before. And I'm thinking, holy Christ, Herbie, these are, these are teen. They, 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 you know, we're providing beer for, uh, you know, minors. <laughs> and I'm the one that's buying it. I've um, heard that story before. Something about uh, they didn't give him the one term. I can't remember how it worked. It worked out, but they they didn't really, they did they won a series and they would get back and he would skate them, right? Yeah. And just the opposite, like he would give them the weekend off after they got swept. Yeah. He would do all kinds of reverse psychology on these well, guys. Well, the, the the skating part was always a big part of his repertoire, and we we played a uh, we played a team in Finland with the junior B national team. And they were taking runs at us and everything else, and we tied him, I think. And so Herbie uh, stood at the door. He wouldn't let us off. wouldn't let him off the ice. And he, and the other team left. They didn't know what was going on, but they left and everything. And he started skating them. And the Zamboni driver comes over to me. And he said, uh, "You need to leave," you know. And I said, uh, "Well, just a little bit longer," you know, like that. And in hockey, you this either is the famous scene from the movie, oh, right? Yeah, yeah. In yeah. hockey, you either you either go in the night to the next place, and then at night you hang the gear so it's dry. Right. Or you hang it there, and you let it dry, and you come up early in the morning and pack it. Well, we were going to hang there and pack it. And Herbie says to me, he's, and, and this is where the 
in the movie they had they had one person who was the doctor and the trainer. Right. And he, I, I said to Herbie, Herbie, they want to lock up. They want us out of here. He said, get the key. Uh, we'll lock up. I said, Herbie, they're not going to give me the key. So I go back in the Zamboni room, and I, I, I go, you give me key. I lock up. He goes over and he turns off the lights. Yep. And uh, uh, Herbie keeps skating him. And one of the players pissed off Smaxy Stick. And I found out later it was Mark Johnson. Okay. And he kept skating him some more. But that was a a pretty close thing, uh, truth to the parts of the movie. I have to think it was the drama where, you know, where are you from? That was part of the drama. That didn't really happen, right? Another thing that happened during that game was – uh, Herbie, we had big guys, but the big tough guys, uh, the biggest guys were not really like fighter, moral. fighters. Moral, moral. moral was an animal yeah. when he was playing, but he would never drop his gloves. No. Herbie told Phil Vercota, who's one of the greatest guys in the world, he's a bank, a retired. Banker. Yeah. He, he told him, go straighten that guy out. So Phil went out there and he picked a fight with the guy, but he never dropped his gloves. I don't know if he ever fought. He, and he came back to the bench and the players are all laughing. <laughs> about Phil, if you're going to get in a fight, you need to drop your gloves, you know. And uh, that that really, I thought that that happened too, you know. Well, it's oh. it's kind of funny, like you know, he always talked about picking the right players, not to make the right team. Yeah, but he did not have a lot of tough guys. No, on that roster. No. I mean, there were very highly I mean, skilled he, and he fast. Had, he had reasons for why he picked certain people, and uh, you know, I mean, there he really was. A lot of anxiety when he had to cut Ralph Cox because yep. he was the last guy cut in 60, and he sure didn't do it by phone in one movie. He felt really bad about that. Uh, Michael Ruzzioni, uh, uh, you know, he broke his wrist at Christmas time. And I told Herbie, I said, because Herbie was he, Now, that's about six weeks out from yeah, the Olympics, he, right? You know, he wasn't the fastest skater, but he was a veteran guy, and he'd been around. He had a lot of... Uh, you know, uh, veteran uh, traits to himself. and uh, But Herbie was thinking about cutting him. And uh, uh, I told him, I said, Herbie, he's going to have to play with a cast. It's going to be four to six weeks. And uh, I don't know, you know, if he's going to get it off before the Olympics, but Herbie stuck with him. I mean, he scored a goal, and it's made his life. And yeah. that in the, in the Russian game uh, at Madison Square Garden, when – uh, they uh, the Russians could have named the score. I mean, I saw Gorwell scored like I'd never seen in my life. And the, this is the ten to three. Game. Yeah, I mean, Krutov did a he left the ball he left the puck on the ice. He did a three sixty and dry, and knocked it in the net. And uh, in the third period, I went down to Herbie and I said, Herbie, we ain't got a chance against these guys. And he said, No shit. <laughs> and I said, I, you know, I thought, mm, you don't think so? But I thought he was happy that they kicked their butts because they were overconfident. And their coach was too, you know, that we could name, we don't have any trouble with the Americans. But in that game, Jack O'Callaghan, another Eastern kid, he uh, he tore his medial collateral ligament in his knee. And I told Herbie, I said, Herbie, this is this is probably a six to eight week injury. And I mean, we're he, like, he's not going to be four weeks yeah, out. Yeah, yeah. He we we had gone in a bus down to play the game, and we were going back to Lake Placid. And we were, you know, it was going to start very soon, the Olympics, and. Uh, he he let O'Callaghan, he left him on the team. He didn't replace him. And he wasn't anywhere near his 100%, but he played a little bit, and he hung in there, but he had a bad knee. But Herbie was loyal to people. You know, he, he knew his, his guys, and he stuck with them. 
is part of their 60 game process is to to kind of build his wall, right? Because he was famous for building that wall. Like, I'm going to be on this side of the wall, and you guys are going to be on that side of the wall. You're going to hate me, but you're going to, at the end of the day, we're all going to love each other because we're going to win. And that's my formula. Yeah, I don't, He that was the attitude he took. But I, we went to a, a some type of a, a celebration after, uh, at Herbie's house. And the players were out in the uh, lake playing volleyball. And, uh, uh, I think he went out and played a little bit, but he still he still couldn't take the hood off. He still, and he he would he would take runs at players, and then he'd want to know, you know, how's he doing? How's he, you know? He would ask me periodically. Les OJ was one of the players from the U that played on that he team. He was one of the last few. And cut he was too. the last cut too, and he uh, Herbie told me once. I remember he said, "I'd love to go out and have a beer with him, but I'd never let myself do it," and. Uh, uh, you know, he was that was just his philosophy. Um, you can't get too close. He never would let him get too close. Um, that's interesting. You should bring that that topic of getting too close and and backing off. You know, putting the pressure on because he definitely knew what he wanted. Right. So you get into the Olympics. Uh, we're we're playing games. Uh, the 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 first game against Sweden was where the big injury to McClanahan. And this is kind of where he galvanizes the, the us against them uh, mentality. Walk through that. It's, 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 it's in the movie, yeah. but you know, you're the, you're the trainer. And then there's a doctor who they kind of m- mash you. And what's his last name? Doc. George Nagabot. Nag- yeah. It's a hard name. Nagi, so yeah. You two are kind of merged together as one character for this movie. Yeah. Um, walk through that moment where, where Robbie's just getting lit up by Herb. Well, he got hurt in the first period of the game. He got a thigh bruise. It was late in the first period, and I thought it would be good for him to get it iced down if we're going to get any, if he's going to be able to play. So I told Herbie, I'm sending him inside, and uh, uh, to try to get iced down. And so we come in the locker room, and Robbie's over in the corner. Uh, the the other trainer had taken a bag of ice and put it on his his knee. He'd flexed his leg to 90 degrees to keep it from tightening up and had this wrapped around with an elastic thing. And Herbie came charging in there, and he started reading Robbie the Riot Act. It, this is between a, the first and second period then? Yeah. You're a, a effing pussy, and you'll never make it to the National Hockey League if you can't uh, if you can't uh, handle a little pain and stuff like that, Robbie straightened his leg and the ice bag went flying up in the air and he went after Herbie because Herbie had turned and was exiting out the locker room. So now he's out there and they're out in the hall yelling and the Swedes hear it and they're in the locker room next to us and now they're looking down the hall watching everything. And then uh, uh, Herbie turns on Robbie and he goes back after him and chases him back into the locker room. And I'm standing there, and I'm thinking, holy shit, we're at the Olympics, and he's lost it. He's absolutely lost it. And then I start looking around, and everybody is getting, you can tell that they're pissed off, that their buddy, their comrade, is being ripped apart by the coach. And that fired. For being soft. that, That fired them up, and they went out. And they played much better. Even the fact that Billy Baker coach uh, scoring a goal with 22 seconds left, or we wouldn't have got a medal. No. We wouldn't have got anything. That was one of the biggest goals right there. Of the whole tournament. Yeah, of the whole tournament. I agree with you on that one. So 
when you're the let's go get back to your craft you know you got this guy he's laying there he's obviously hurt and he's not going to be able to play and so you have this guy he's trying to do whatever he wants he's a competitor rob everyone knows rob mcclanahan's a competitor and then you have herb brooks over here and you're somewhere in the middle on this aren't you i'm standing right behind herbie looking at all these people you know but you're like from from getting him nursing him back to getting on the ice and he wants him on the ice and he's saying i might be hurt right he didn't miss a minute he He, never missed he went back out and played Okay, so where we, do you Then we do, have a day or two to get him better. So what's your job in that role to get him out on the ice and then get him better? Is it it's just well, constant care? No, not really, because, I mean, from my standpoint, we had the other trainer. I couldn't go in the village because I wasn't official. Okay, so and during so games? I stayed, uh, during the game, I stayed in the, at the rink. Okay. And uh, we, we would do some treatment there, but not much. So non-games, you aren't treating Rob? No. Okay, a non-game days. Okay, all right. Gotcha. Um, all right, let's fast forward. Is there a point, or is it only during the during the Russian game that you thought that – is there a point ever that you think you were going to beat the Russians, beat, beat the Soviets? Uh, I don't know if there ever was a point because when we went ahead, there was like 10 minutes to go in the uh, third period. I mean, that was the longest third period of our, you know, you know, in our life, you know, I mean, oh my God, it was unbelievable. And, you know, I always, Herbie used to have uh, Nagy do some things. Nagy would have a stopwatch and he would keep track of the time of a penalty and everything. And I would always, uh, at the 30 minute, uh, 30 second mark of a penalty, I would go ter- tell Herbie, uh, you're going to be, sh- you- we're going to be short in 30 seconds, or we're going to have a power play in 30 seconds to try to keep track of uh, where we were. And then he'd think of who he wants out on the ice. And he would uh, do some uh, switching and stuff like that. And in during the, during the third period, before that 10-minute marker, I'm not, I'm not sure. I, I haven't even looked at all the the video. I have the video, but I, I've never looked at it. Mobile Oil gave us VC, uh, gave me VHS tapes of everything. Okay. But I've never spent any time really looking at games. I don't know why. But anyway, the, Kenny, Kenny Morrow was in the penalty box with a, pen, uh, with a penalty, and he was coming out, and we were killing it, and it was going good. Something happened where we, ha- we put already a defenseman in for Kenny so that his position wouldn't be short. And some, Neil Broughton jumped over the boards and was going out when the penalty expired, and we had too many men on the ice. And I don't know how I did it, but I grabbed, for his ja- I grabbed him by the jersey and pulled him back on the bench. And right. we, we did not get caught for too many men on the ice. And Herbie, Herbie came down and uh, uh, said to me, Smitty, way to stay in the game, way to stay in the game. <laughs> and Bobby Souter, the late yep. Bobby Souter, was a great guy too, another Wisconsin guy we hated when we played him. <laughs> oh, for but he sure. was a great guy. He, he – uh, he, he he heard this because he didn't play a regular shift, and it was down at the defenseman down there by the end where I was. And he kind of looked at me and smiled and gave me a shit-ass grin, you know, like that. <laughs> and I I told uh, Ryan, his son, with the wild that, and he said, you know something, I, I my dad talked to me about that too, about you. And, uh, I mean, those are just little things that were just great. Enjoyed it. So – I got to ask the question, and 
what you might be most famous for is after Ruzioni scores the goal to go ahead. You were just brought it up here. Do you realize where the camera was when this went down? Well, I, I did because my mother was dying of cancer in, in Iowa, and she had breast cancer that went to her brain. And uh, uh, the, the camera guy was there, and I almost went home. I almost went back to Iowa because uh, – uh, you know, I wanted to be there, and she died two weeks after the Olympics. But my sister said, "No, you got to stay because she sees you on TV, and she perks up and everything." And the g- guy, the same cameraman, was in there, and and him and I used to talk and everything else. I give him a puck now and then, yep. and I didn't realize he was shooting me. But uh, you know, he was, and you know, I got a little carried away there after that goal. <laughs> I mean, holy the man. towel, yeah. right? And the long hair and everything else, the you know. big uh, horn rim glasses. Oh, I God. mean, you were one handsome yeah, devil, let me yeah. tell you. Oh, yeah. It's, but I stayed, and we won it, and, and we, we went. Um, walk through a couple. I want to go through a couple Olympic things. You win the game. There's a party in the street afterwards. What's Gary Smith doing during this party in the streets after beating the Soviets? Well, What's your uh, recollection? Uh, uh, they put us on a on a bus and took us to a private party at a house someplace, and uh, you know it was kind of it was kind of like smack yourself because what the hell did we do? It was a shock, you know. And we got on Air Force Two, which is the vice president's plane, like four a.m. in the morning to go to Washington D.C. And we landed in Andrews Air Force Base, and uh, and there were crowds there. We got on yellow school bus to ride to the White House. And we go out of Andrews Air Force Force, and the streets got people. Uh, there's people on the streets, and you start looking at each other like, what the hell did we do, you know? And we get to the White House, and we meet the president, and we have a meal there, but we have to, we have to uh, 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 eat it standing up because it's easier for the Secret Service to move around to keep things under control. And... Uh, uh, you want the Janicek? Uh, no, we can't. Well, I suppose it's published, so I suppose you can you can well, tell the Janicek story. It still uh, just boggles my mind. Yeah, it's uh, Herbie. Herbie and I are standing out in an outer area, and the the army band is playing music, and he he sidles, he pulls into his his suit. He said, "I don't want to rain on the parade parade, but read this," and. Uh, 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 it's a telegram from Mr. and Mrs. Janicek ripping Herbie a new one because they never got hit, their son in a game. And, uh, uh, you know, I read that, and I just, you know, that's the way parents are a lot in it's this It's kind world, of fitting. This world we live in. It was prophetic to what's good, to, what I, to come, I, right? I kind of kept that to myself. And then a guy named Wayne Coffey wrote a book called The uh, Boys a Winner. And he used to call me and see if this happened or see if this, you know. Well, true. Once a month he'd call me, and he told me that story. And I said, how the hell did you hear that? He said, where did you get that? I said, I've known that, but I've never said, I've never told a person that. And yes. he, he said, are you going to put that in the book? And he said, yeah. He said, I, I think I am. But Mr. and Mrs. Janicek regretted saying that. Yeah. Because, because their son met his wife at the— Lake Placid, and he got you know he lives out east, and he got a good job on Wall Street, and but yet 
it happens. You know. It is. It's 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 a stark reality of yeah. you know you were a hockey parent. Uh, I was uh, a hockey parent. Yeah. Just, it does some crazy things yeah. to you, doesn't it? It does. It warps your mind. Your <laughs> reality of what what really is happening is sometimes skewed by your blind faith that something's happening. Before we skip ahead to Eden Prairie and the and then the and the Flyers, we don't try twenty five minutes to go on our on our deadline here. Um, I got to go back to the the locker room after you beat the Soviets. Herb's exit stage that's well documented. He edges stage left. You you kind of stick around for a few seconds to watch this just unbelievable celebration go on uh, inside the rink. You guys have a moment in the locker room before the players make it back to the locker room. Walk through that. It kind of brings chills to hear the story. Yeah, Herbie always felt that this, you know, the accolade should go to the players. And it, it, he tried to, he sometimes took, took some of the, uh, the limelight uh, off of them by him doing things, you know, being, so like, being outspoken. So the entire tournament, the players yeah. were not at the press conference. No, he that would be, that's unheard of today, by yeah, the way. Yeah. They, he, would, they would require them to be at the press conference. He wanted them to not get too big a heads and just keep, you know, the gr- nose to the grindstone. Focused. So he did, he did not go out on the ice. Everybody else did, and I kind of followed suit with him. I never went on the ice. And uh, uh, so I headed back in to see where what was going on. I got back in the locker room, and it's empty. And I, and I hear something in the back, and I go back there, and here's Herbie uh, coming out of a, a, a toilet. And he looks at me, and he said, what the hell did we do? I said, we won it all. And, I mean, you know, it was just a, a, a moment, you know, that you think about. And, and, uh, and then he brought him. He took the whole team over for the press conference. Then, yeah, that turned into a wild, uh, <laughs> a wild time. Let me tell you, I can only imagine. So you win on, you go back and you win the gold. You clinch the gold by beating the Finns, um, and they just became darlings. The, these twenty kids became darlings. Like yeah. you were, you were talking about going to the White House and probably being on Good Morning America. Did you have any clue that was going to happen when you stopped, started on that voyage at Bloomington Ice no, Garden? No way. No. No, really, uh, we were just happy the, to represent and try to, you know, sneak in and get a bronze medal. Yeah. But uh, it, it's much bigger now than it was then, really. I mean, it's a bigger deal than it was then because it – you know, you, you, we were in a small little hamlet in, in upstate New York. We didn't know what was going on all around the world. Yeah. And uh, then when they won it, uh, when we won it, I mean, it, it, the streets were packed with people and stuff like that. You could, I saw some of the film later on. Yeah, it's, it's funny you talk about we're just hoping to get a bronze. Uh, I'm not sure if you said it on the show or your wife only came for the first week of the Olympics she, because we didn't think they were going to do much. She regret that. And now? She was, she's really good pals with Pratty Brooks. And so they, they hung out together and everything, but she went back home after the first week. I think she saw three games. Yeah. And then the rest of them she watched on TV. And that's kind of right where it started to turn. I feel, I feel like, Hey, we could really meddle when they took down the checks. I think that yeah. was where everyone, I think the rest, I mean, not the hockey community, I mean, non-hockey didn't really know what was going on until Friday. But when they beat the checks, it was like, wow, this is one of the best teams yeah. in the world. It and is. Just yeah, that was them. right. And they killed them, too. They really stuck it to yeah. them. Yeah, yeah. 
So let's keep going forward here. Uh, by 1990, you get, I would call it a dream job. In, in some in some respects, you get hired by the Philadelphia Flyers. I mean, this is a panel of 10, 12 different trainers. You go through the interviewing process. You get the job with the Flyers. What's it like to be a pro uh, in a big-time league? It's really a business, and it really, uh, uh, you know, you work you work every day. Whether they're on the ice or not, it's, uh, you know, my four years in Philly, I would have been starting my fourth coach. I got let go in Philly because uh, my general manager, who I got along with really well, Russ Farwell, uh, he got fired after I agreed to a two-year contract and they brought back Bobby Clark. I wasn't Bobby Clark's guy. Right. And so uh, he wanted to bring somebody that uh, uh, he knew. Uh, that uh, was more familiar with it. And actually, the guy he brought uh, used to help me. He was a strength and conditioning guy. His name was John Worley. Yeah. And uh, he replaced me with the Flyers. And then he got let go uh, he, uh, by by Clark and them. And now he's the head trainer with the uh, Wild. Yeah, it's a small and, world. Uh, so we see, see each other quite frequently. We get together because uh, I, I had no help. I had no assistance or anything at the Flyers. Uh, John would help me sometimes when I got in, in trouble because he was there as a strength conditioning guy. But uh, like Eric Lindros was there the two years, the last two years I was there. And uh, he, he, his family and he did not like the doctor that we had with the Flyers. So when he got hurt, he would be taken up to uh, Toronto to be taken care of. His uh, mother was a nurse, and his father's uh, best friend was a big-time orthopod who was the national team ski coach for Canada. And so the Flyers are covered by six TV stations, 10 radio stations, five daily newspapers, and they want to know how Lindros is. I don't even know where the hell he is. <laughs> I, you know, I, and he, he had several injuries while I was there. He, oh, yeah, he was injury-prone. And so, you know, I would hide in the training room because they weren't allowed to come in there. And, uh, you know, you talk about concussions and stuff like that. I distinctly remember one game because Eric was an – he was 6'4", 225, could skate like no tomorrow, big, strong, but he kind of had a soft melon. He had some concussion problems. One game they they called, uh, uh, they said, Smitty, he needs you. So I went down there and said, what's wrong, Eric? He said, I got hit in the head. I said, well, what are you feeling? He said, I can't see out of my one eye. I said, okay, let's go. Let's go have the doc take a look at it. No, no, give me a few minutes. I'll be okay. And I went back down to the other side of the bench and got out the rosary beads and play, pray like hell. But he never came out of the game. I mean, that would never, it never should happen nowadays. He should be evaluated, see where he's at. And and concussions did cost him his career. He eventually had to give up. Uh, uh, you I know, mean, they, hockey. And and I'm sure the Flyers put added pressure on in that situation since they basically traded away their entire. Oh. Field. Their entire franchise to get him. We we gave up fifteen million dollars, which was, isn't a lot nowadays. Back then, five it was five players and two number one draft choices. One of them was Peter uh, Forsberg, Forsberg, who turned out to be yeah. ten times the player. Yeah, that that and Lindros I, ever was. And I just I just got a, a note from England too. I had a, a friend whose name was Mike Bailey. He played for Wolverhampton and Charlton and is a great hockey, a soccer player. And uh, he came over as the first co- assistant coach and player for uh, the Kicks. 
and he now is fighting dementia. And they think it's because when he played, the balls would get waterlogged and they were heavy, and they think hitting the ball is causing a lot of concussion problems in England. I uh, believe it. That's it's it's, and, it's a scary thing. Oh, he really is. And so the poor guy now is uh, having a tough time of it. All right. So it's funny. We talk about those, those, those flyers years and they were kind of the least happy years in your career. Well, it was, uh, you know, I had, I, my family stayed here. Yeah. And so I went out there and worked and, uh, is is in in pro sports is an unbelievable amount of pressure to keep people healthy and keep them in the game and stuff like that and so they fire coaches they fire trainers they they get rid of people if you don't uh you know but i always felt in my you know heart to heart the players were number one with me and if i had a player come to me and say i don't want you to say this to anybody but you know i said that's it i i said i work for the club so i've got to I've got to tell them that if you're you're not right, but yet uh, I had one player who uh, who tore his ACL and a torn ACL in those days. Uh, you know, you sometimes played with him, right. and his name was Ron Casper. And uh, he, uh, uh, after two weeks, this doctor I told you about decided we we're going to brace him up and let see how he because he was on a termination contract. He had a contract for that year, yeah. but he wasn't playing next year. So if he didn't have a contract, I told him, I said, listen, if they don't fix your knee, you go to Los Angeles and have Lombardo do it because that's where we got him from. Right. And if they found that out, I could be fired. But this player played a few more years because he got his knee fixed, got it reconstructed, and was able to play a few more years. So I was a player's guy all the way. And I gave him the best advice I could. And, uh, you know, I have a stick at home uh, that's signed by Rick Tockett that says it was great having you as a trainer to have somebody to know somebody cared. Yeah. Well, you see it. I, I watched a video uh, for TCO that you, you work for, and they put a nice video. And you can just see the looks on the players' faces. You know, oh, yeah. here comes we, I get Smitty. And, you know, they, they called you a grumpy well, uh, in the video. I'm like, I, I've yet to see the grumpy side. Yeah. Maybe, maybe i got to go back to Boston University, yeah. U of M, to see grumpy. Well, but... I don't see that side. It sounds like you're the type that, that took the advice from Stein. Is that his name? Yeah. Uh, Lloyd Stein, where you, the player comes first. Yeah. You know, there's a player attached to that ankle. There's a player attached to the human. Felt, I felt bad about the coaches, too. But, uh, you know, I mean, I've been at uh, Eden Prairie 23 years. the best job I've ever had because of the fact that the kids and their parents and the coaches appreciate everything I can do. Right. Anything I can do. And Mike Grant and I, he, I think he, I know he appreciates everything. Now he's jumping ship on me as the yeah. AD, but he's going to keep coaching football. I don't know if I'm going to stay or not. I, uh, I got to think about that, but, uh, well, that's a great segue. You, uh, worked for no, which I want to see what sports you, you worked. Was it just football and hockey or did you do all the sports at Eden Prairie? Uh, I do all sports. Really? I'm the trainer for everything. Yeah. So when you say all sports, is it game day that you're there? Or well, in, are you there for I'm practices? In the, I'm in the training room. I, I'm normally there for three hours if I don't have a game. And then so, I go to every game that we have, basketball. On the road? Uh, no, not on the road. Only home games. Oh, only, uh, only on the road when they get to the tournaments. If I don't have anything at home, then I go with them. On the road in football. I work home and away in football. Home and away for football. So that's 10, 12 so, gigs. I mean, there was one time I was sitting in the last year, I was sitting in the uh, 
this isn't anywhere near what Edina has, but we have banners up for state championships. And I've been at Eden Prairie for 78 state championships. So, you know, and there's only a couple sports that haven't won a state championship. Uh, and uh, I don't want to jinx them or anything like that. But. No, no, no. But it's <laughs> fascinating. So let's walk through a couple football. Um, and then we'll, 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 we'll end it with hockey at Eden Prairie. And then we'll do the, if you could thing. Um, uh, the Eden Prairie football is like synonymous with with greatness, and you, you've already talked about Mike Grant. What what's the key to their success, whether it's be on the field or the culture, or what are some of the things that you notice uh, at Eden Prairie from a football well, perspective? I think the coaching is number one, and uh, I know there are a lot of games that we win at halftime by making adjustments, and there, there's not a lot of yelling that goes on. It's always positive reinforcement and stuff like that. And when I first went to, I always had, a, I always feel uh, that you never want to hurt kids in practice and do everything you could to save them for the games and stuff like that because that's what the your bread and butter. You want to play the games. And Mike, coming from St. John's. I was just going to say this sounds he, a lot uh, like Gilardi. He, he, he agrees with me, and we very rarely hit. We, we have a couple of coaches, uh, an old Johnny who was a animal there, a, a defensive All-American, you know. He will sometimes take him over in the corner and, and bash a little heads, but it doesn't happen very long. And we don't hurt uh, – our kids luckily don't get hurt a lot in practice, so they're available to play games and stuff. And there's a, just a tremendous – you know, they love little kids going, growing up watching Eden Prairie football. I mean, I've been there 23 years. We've won 11 state championships. I mean, that's unbelievable in football. It, it's, it's crazy. Um, one of the things what I, when I imagine uh, Eden Prairie football is like an execution machine. So it seems like they just sit there uh, from an offensive perspective and have their 18 plays, and they run them over and over and over and execute them and execute yeah. them. Uh, you're probably there during practice. Is, is, it, is it a lot more head stuff and a lot less physical? Uh, it is. Uh, there's a lot of repetition so that they know what to do. And Grant uh, uh, puts a lot of uh, the better players, most skilled players, on defense. He said, if they don't score, we're not going to lose. But then when we get to the playoffs and stuff, he takes some of these kids that are very talented physically, and he finds ways to incorporate them into the offense or, or put them someplace. Or now we had an offensive tackle that that's what he was being groomed at in college. He started playing defensive tackle for a while. But on our last game with some of the kids we had out with COVID and stuff like that, we had defensive linemen and a linebacker. Those were our running backs. <laughs> and uh, and we beat, I think that was against uh, uh, St. Michael. Michael. We, did a, we did a little bit of that. That was the toughest team we played this year. And then uh, – we had one playoff game, and uh, then it was over. Do you find yourself, again, going back to your craft, I've asked a lot more craft questions than I thought I was going to. Do you find yourself uh, going from trainer, tape, injury, ice, all the things that related, water, all the things that related to your to your craft, to turning it into a fan when it's fourth and two and the ball's on the, on the you know, um, two-yard line? Do you find yourself as... Oh, wanting I, to see these kids win and get pretty excited about it. I do. I mean, going back to the yeah. whole towel wave at, yeah. at the Olympic arena, like, yeah. do you find yourself as a fan still? I do. I does do. it ever get boring? Uh, it does, yeah. It, it does. does get boring? Yeah. Watching them win all the time? Well, it. I, I don't know if it's boring, but uh, I, I get negative when we don't win. 
Really? Yeah. Um, when somebody makes a mistake, and uh, that's the opposite of Grant. Yeah. Grant will find a way to uh, smooth the feathers of somebody that screwed up. Yeah. But uh, and, and I'm I'm a I'm a bad loser. I'm a sore loser. <laughs> and uh, you know, and I don't know. All right, uh, last coach. We'll we'll sneak from from uh, Grant over to Lee Smith. Uh, no relation, right? No relation. Um, now Lee uh, comes from uh, a great. You know, he had a great hockey career. Went to Mankato, um, and has really built one of the three, four best programs in the state. You've been with him basically the entire time. Uh, what what do you what is, what are, what are one of the attributes about Lee that you you see that you know that most coaches could learn from? Well, he's a, he's a very positive guy too, and uh, he, he's always looking for the uh, the right matchups and stuff like that. And uh, you know, for some reason, when you've had the uh, background that I've had, they, he sometimes during the game he'll ask me what I see or what I and I I'm not I'm not a coach to the point where I see things like the coaches do, but. Uh, you know, I'll just give him something. He wants something that that I can, he can use to go in there and you know and and charge him up or something like that. I try well, to be positive that they're playing hard. I think a lot of the times it's like he's in the forest, right? That he's eyeing every play, every puck, everything, and you're not necessarily in the forest. You're kind of looking at kind of more of a big picture. Yeah. He kind of leans on you for that, but doesn't the, he? But the people who stand out to me are the people that score or the people that ha- give big hits. Right. Or a goalie that turns into a sieve or something like that, you know. But uh, he, uh, uh, he, he really, I, I think if any sport where there's an overabundance of opinionated people that are on the fringes, it's hockey. And he, <laughs> keep going, to, keep to, going. To deal with that, uh, Lee Smith should be given an uh, Academy Award. I mean, he, you know, you, you can never win enough for some people. And uh, the the thing that's good about coaching is there's a turnover. Yeah. There's a turnover, and that's what keeps of me players, young. players, right? Yeah, it keeps yeah. me young, keeps me wanting to do it, is because they stay young. I keep getting older. But <laughs> but Lee, you know, Lee, uh, he, he, he has to have, juggle a lot of balls. Yeah, and, he does. Uh, and some of the cuts, I know he's like Herbie. He agonized over having to, to, uh, to uh, let a senior know that they're not going to make it, you know, and that we're, the end of the career or the end of the road is coming here. They've had some fairly legendary players come out of Eden Prairie, especially in the, on the, at the hockey rink. You know, Kyle Rau uh, makes the dramatic return and comes back and scores one of the probably one of the most famous goals in high school hockey history. Walk through your brain when in that game, because I bet you were working overtime during that game because uh, uh, Duluth East was t- destroying Eden Prairie physically in that yeah. game. Uh, do you have any memories from that, or just maybe it, maybe it's just the big goal he scored and was it double or well, triple I, overtime? I do I do remember when we scored that Lee and I had a big hug and we almost fell off the bench. But you know what I remember about that? That was a tremendous goal by uh, Kyle. Um, but the uh, the thing I remember about that was the cla- one of the classiest guys I've ever been around and had the opportunity to work because I work state tournament uh, hockey a lot was Mike Randolph. Oh, Mike yeah. Randolph came in the uh, came in the uh, room and told uh, congratulated our team and he said it was a tremendous accomplishment because you had the target on your back uh, uh, from the day one. 
and you went from there. And, uh, you know, some of those things may really make you fit. Moorhead came here so many times as a runner-up. And one of the coaches they had was a coach with the Moose. We haven't talked about the Moose, but I was a trainer with the Minnesota really? Moose for two years Yeah, after I came back from Philly. But Dave Mournville was the coach of yes. Moorhead. And he brought me in to talk to the Moorhead team uh, about the Olympics and about how do, you need to enjoy this and look in the mirror and at the end of the game, did I do everything I could because this may not ever come around again to yeah. just to, just to encourage them to give it your all, just bust your butt the most you can and do everything you can. So you don't say at the end, I wish I'd had done this on and on and on. Yeah. 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 And I, sure. I think that's, you know, when talking to football teams or basketball teams, sometimes the coaches will say, Smitty, you want to throw anything in here? I'll say, just make sure you give everything you can so you can look in the mirror and say, I tried my best, whether you won or lost. Yeah, so you and got, that's what it's all about. So you got the Kyle situation. Uh, now you got to get to Casey. Um, you had him for three years uh, at Eden Prairie. And he, he, took some, he took some lumps too, especially uh, late in his, especially in the, the, the Wyzetta game, uh, state championship game. He, he got banged up pretty good. Walk through that whole situation. Well, I think, you know, uh, Wyzetta was a very physical team, and they were, they were really going to pound, pound on us because we had a lot of skilled players and stuff like that. And uh, uh, Casey bruised his knee in the first period. And, I mean, any time he wasn't on the ice or in the locker room, we were icing his knee because he bruised the kneecap a little bit. And, uh, uh, but he... Uh, he didn't go to juniors. He came back, and he stayed with Eden Prairie. That's the same thing that Nick Letty did. Yeah. Uh, those are quality kids that want to want to extend their, their, their high school career when they're getting people saying, you need to go. You need to go play juniors, or you need to jump school early and, you know, get, get on with the rest of your career. They want to play with the kids that they grew up playing with. And that's what it's all about. Yeah, you talked about Nick Letty and, and go back to Casey here. Any any vivid memories of of him in, in a specific game? Or you like, oh, in, in, ten years from now you're gonna look back at Casey and they'll say, what was the thing that jumps out at you about Casey? Well, uh, it's a negative memory. Okay, because I feel sorry for him because yeah. the, the winning goal went off his skate. Yes, and but, I uh, the Grand Rapids one. I I don't know who we were playing, but in in a state championship, no, they didn't win it. It was it was I think Rapids against Grand Rapids semifinal. It might have went off his skate. It went off his skate, yeah. and that was a that was a goal. I because he gave so much to that team and yeah. was so skilled. I mean, he's he's the most skilled player I think I've ever I've ever seen at Eden Prairie. Yeah, no although although it. Nick could really skate, <laughs> and Kyle, you were never going to get the best of Kyle. No. Just determined. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Very, very determined. Who's a kid uh, from a hockey? You said 20-some years of hockey at Eden Prairie that you may, you may, maybe no one knew about or, or, or you like just, just like working with her, just a character that comes back to the rink or you see around, you know, Eden Prairie circles that you just had, a, you know, who he really liked. Um, well, right now there's one that I really like is very uh, – He's. I think he's going to play this year. I'm not sure. It was Johnny Hartle. Oh yeah, football and, player. Yeah, he, great he, football player. Football, hockey, and lacrosse. I mean, he's he's had injuries. He's had to deal with the people that I have to work with, and I had to deal with his brother in the state tournament. Had a shoulder problem. He's right. at Notre Dame right now, and I don't think he's playing hockey. He's playing club hockey. But I mean, that's what jumps at me is Johnny Hartle. 
I always um, see his name pop up uh, in on Twitter about you know two touchdowns here. You know he had a great football season yeah. this year. Ryan I- Iverson is one that uh, I got a picture sent to me from uh, uh, John Sherman of me and uh, Ivy sitting on the. Uh, uh, he does color commentary now, but Ryan he does? was yeah for uh, state basketball tournaments and does some uh, local TV up north, Brooklyn Park or something like that. But he was a tremendous football player, oh. and we won a state championship with him as a linebacker. And I told people there, I said, I can't believe this guy's better at basketball, but he was. Yeah, and he took us to the state tournament in basketball. He was a hell of a basketball player, even better than football, I think. I recall here's a football someone and was about Ryan Iverson. You know, he didn't have the four four speed or whatever, but he he was one of those kids that had football speed. Like he he knew exactly yeah. how to get to players. He just was one of the biggest gamers you yeah. I'd ever in all the Eden Prairie athletes of all the ones. Yeah. He's the one I keep coming back to as the one who really kind of turned the tide in any game. It was always Ryan Iverson who could do that yeah he was and he didn't he didn't have a great college career no. because he was hurt a lot yeah and but he was he was a gamer that's right all right last topic we're gonna make it out of here just at about 90 minutes here all your years of being at the state tournament with notwithstanding the eden prayer we talked about those guys what's your biggest takeaway from working you know you, you made the MSHSL Hall of Fame. You've worked a lot of state high school hockey tournaments. What's your biggest takeaway from from the state high school hockey tournament? Um, it's such a big tournament. I mean, it's 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 the Super Bowl for high school hockey, and the crowds that we get. There's just some tremendous hockey being played, and the majority of all the coaches are just so. Uh, outgoing and, and appreciative of anything you can do to help them. Most of them nowadays bring their own athletic trainer, and I'm just kind of a backup. Right. I'm just there to uh, represent the high school league and do anything I can to help you out. And uh, I think just seeing all those people, like Louie Nanny, seeing him all the time, because I've, I've known Louie for a long, long time. When I first started uh, doing them, uh, Louie Nanny and, and, uh, Bob, and, and uh, uh, Reed – What's Reed's first? Tom Reed. Tom Reed would go at it. They would. Uh, uh, one time, Louie Nanny brought, uh, took my uh, talcum powder out of my kit and filled <laughs> and filled Reed's sport coat with it. Oh, his yeah. pocket. And so when he's standing there on TV, there's kind of a, a white thing. But and they would go, every year they go back and forth trying to one up themselves. Oh, that's. But good. But Louie's a great great guy, and I get to see him every year there too. Did you ever have a moment? I mean, because I've I've watched almost every one of these state tournaments since. I don't know, mid seventies. Did you ever? What's the one moment where you're like, "Oh, I'm gonna swear here." Oh shit, that just happened. What was your moment? I got mine. I'm, I'll show you mine. But I was like, I can't believe that was unbelievable. There's been a lot of them. Yeah, there really has. Maybe I'll give you mine and then see if you can okay. come back. Mine was Duluth East beating Edina in 2015. Uh, Eden Prairie was there. Uh, Eden Prairie and Lakeville South. North, we're playing north. next. So yeah. they were red and black, and, and Duluth yeah. East is red and black. So the whole rink, except Edina, is red and black. Yeah. And when Duluth East scored, the place just comes unglued. And I've never seen anything like it, watching Edina lose and having the whole state and the whole arena cheering against yeah. them and watching it kind of come unglued. Do you, do you have something that could match I, I that? I go back to coaches, you know. I really... 
I hit it off well. Like Kurt Giles is a great friend because uh, uh, Craig Hartsburg was a North Star, and he yeah. was, he was an assistant coach in Philly with me, and so we we talk about. Uh, Hartsey and how what have you heard from him and how things are going and if Eden Prairie can't win I'm glad that Kurt Giles is there but Mike Randolph is a is a is a great guy too so there are a lot of a lot of coaches Robbie was coaching there we played yeah. Blake the, uh, last year but I, I think, what a game that was oh it was a great game yeah it was a great game so you, your worlds collide almost every time you go to the rink. How do you uh, stay focused on the on the work and then and and, I, and and not you know chum up with a guy like Robbie who you have so much history with? Yeah, I I just swear at him because he he swore at me because when we beat him he wasn't he wasn't it, happy. No, was he? he wasn't happy. He's a competitor though, big time. I, I don't know. I I I I bleed Eden Prairie. I really want Eden Prairie to do well because I want. I want positive uh, things to happen for them, but you probably can learn a lot more by being on the other end of that stick. Yeah, you definitely can. Uh, all right, last question. It's a segment we do. It's called If You Could. Uh, in this case, if you could change one thing in the 50-some years of being an athletic trainer, whether it be took a job that you didn't want to take, uh, whatever it may be, what, what if you could go back and change one little turn the dial one way, what would it be? Oh, boy. Probably I wish I wasn't involved in that fight at, at uh, in Denver, in, but I I wish Herbie hadn't died because he was just he was just great for great for hockey and he was a great guy. He just uh, he took care of me like no tomorrow. I I I I did have a chance to tell him that. Uh, I mean I owe all all to to that trip with up to Minnesota to pay my own way because I was exposed to Herbie Brooks and he took me on the ride of my life. And I think having that on my resume has opened so many doors for me. It's unbelievable. Well, uh, this was an amazing ride. Uh, I tried to get it to 90, 90 minutes. We were at 95 minutes, so we did a pretty good job. We're both going to get home. Our wives aren't going <laughs> to be mad at us. I really appreciate Gary spending some time with me. I got a quick little sponsor read, and we'll get you out the door. Put a dent in your Christmas list this weekend. Take home a free hat by spending $100 or more through Small Business Saturday, actually through all through Christmas, online at the Minnesotan or Go to their store. It's an awesome store in White Bear Lake. Uh, no online code required. Uh, thanks a lot for tuning into today's show. Gary Smith, uh, Hall of Fame legend, has been with us today. I hope you enjoyed it.